Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast for Hope City Church. We pray the word of God leaves you encouraged and hopeful today. Raise your hand if you have never suffered in any way. Never <laughs> It's amazing. Nope. You just wait till you get home. (laughs) So let's all pray for this one. He's about to experience his first moment of suffering. For the rest of us, what that means, what we understand is, okay, we all have, if nothing else, we all have at least one thing in common in here. And that is the experience of suffering. Suffering is a reality. It's just a reality. It's part of of life. Jesus promised that we would have tribulation in this life. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 4, says, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Not if it comes upon you. He says, don't be surprised when it comes upon you to test you, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, so that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Philippians chapter 1, verse 29 says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Man, we like those first two. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. May share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. The book of James tells us to count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Not if you meet trials of various kinds, but when you meet trials of various kinds. I am not have no intention to glorify suffering. So let me just make that clear right up front. We don't glorify suffering. I don't know anyone who prays for suffering. Maybe you need, I've never asked God to make me suffer, never, okay? I've never prayed that I would encounter suffering. I have no intention to glorify suffering or or do as some do and develop this kind of idea of suffering as if suffering itself is just noble, as if the, the, the only way to be a true Christian is to just suffer. And if you experience any moments of joy or happiness or healing or prosperity or blessing, that you should shun those because suffering is the only way. No, I have no intention to do that. But what I do want to do is acknowledge the fact that suffering is a reality. It is a part of our life experience. And I could have given tons of other verses. I know I just gave you a bunch, but I could have given tons of others because the Bible is not silent on the topic of suffering. Not even close. The Bible has much to say about suffering, and yet so many people are surprised or completely unprepared for the reality of suffering. We, We don't know how to suffer well. We don't know how to suffer in the right way. Or when we encounter suffering, we don't know what to do with it. And why is that? I think at least part of it is because many, and I'm not picking on the church, but many are biblically illiterate. We don't actually know what the Bible has to say about suffering because we're not reading the Bible. So we're not equipped there. 
And that the only teaching, the only time we hear the scripture is when somebody teaches it to us. And, and to be honest, that would lead into the second reason why I think we're unprepared is because many pulpits ignore or superficially gloss over the topic of suffering. So we just don't want to talk about it. It's easy and fun. And I'll tell you, as a teacher, as a pastor, it's easy and fun to preach the raw, raw message. It's hard to dive into the depth of biblical teaching on suffering. But it's there, and we can't ignore it. And it's there for our good. It's there to equip us for when the inevitability of suffering comes. And so, so many people being unprepared, they have no robust theology of suffering. And so when the waves of suffering inevitably come, many are bashed around on the rocks and their faith is destroyed. Because they were taught that following Jesus means everything goes well for me. And when the wave comes... They abandoned their faith because, guess what? Jesus didn't work because suffering came. Instead of being taught that, no, suffering is a reality, it's all over the scriptures, and it actually has much to say to prepare us for suffering. So what I want to do in some small measure this morning is to help prepare you for those waves that at least, hopefully, this pulpit would not ignore or superficially gloss over the subject of suffering. Not that I'm the only one. <clears throat> I want to give you what I would call anchor points. Some immovable rocks or pillars of truth that you can cling to, that you can anchor yourself to when the waves of suffering come crashing in so that you're not, your faith is not destroyed. Does that make sense? So anchor points. I think I have nine, but we're going to get through probably three today. Okay? And we're still probably going to go over time. Anchor point number one. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. That God has ultimate power and authority. Okay? Because if we can't agree that God has ultimate power and authority, we need to dive into that teaching. And I need to do a series on the sovereignty of God. Okay? God is sovereign. That is, God has ultimate power and authority. When you encounter waves of suffering, you need to be anchored to the truth that God is on his throne still. That God is ruling and reigning and has ultimate power and authority. He is sovereign over all things even your suffering. God is in control. A few years ago, I heard a preacher say this, and this is, I think, a direct quote. God is not in control. And if he is, then he's a bad manager. Because of all the suffering we see in this world. That statement is nearly blasphemy. And I questioned whether the word nearly was right to use there. I understand what we're trying to do. We go, God's not in, this is a preacher trying to comfort a church and says, God is not in control. And if he is, then he's a bad manager because we see so much suffering. And in fact, this is an accusation of atheists, isn't it? This is an atheist accusation. There is no God, because if there's God, then why would he allow all this suffering? 
So we're agreeing with the atheists from the pulpit when we make statements like God is not in control, and if he is, then he's a bad manager. That's an atheist argument. It ignores the depth of scriptural teaching about the sovereign reign of God over all things. Now, you might be tempted to say, because I understand what we're getting at, you might be tempted to say, no, I kind of agree with that. I think in some ways Satan is in control. Scripture, in fact, calls him the ruler of this world. And he causes suffering. Or you might say, hang on, we have free will and we make all kinds of choices in our free will that cause suffering. And I absolutely agree with both of those statements. Scripture does call Satan the god of this world and he's running around wreaking all kinds of havoc and we do have free will and we make choices, sinful choices in our free will that devastate others. And that is a root of so much of our suffering. And in fact, I would go as far as to say that all suffering is ultimately rooted in the fall of man. That we don't see it before the fall of man and we don't see it in the, in the new heavens and the new earth. So I absolutely agree that the ultimate will of God is the absolute good and, and, and um, the good of his children and the, and the absolute eradication of all suffering. I absolutely agree with that. And I absolutely agree that, that the enemy comes around and devastates and that causes suffering and that we have free will and make choices and that causes suffering. But none of that abolishes the fact that God is still sovereign. That God is still sovereign over all. Let me give you some verses that, that may be uncomfortable if you've never heard depth of teaching on this. Lamentations chapter 3, verses 37 and 38. Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord had commanded it? I want you to see the sovereignty of God. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 14. And the day of prosperity, be joyful. You don't have to suffer and not, and not oh, I can't enjoy that. I'm supposed to suffer. I'm, oh, no, no. And the day of prosperity, man, absolutely be joyful and celebrate and rejoice and praise God for that. It says, and in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Isaiah chapter 45, verse seven, if those verses were not direct enough. What I wanna do is I want, I want to get you to the point where if you disagree, you're disagreeing with the word and not with my opinion. Okay? So these, this here is God speaking. Isaiah chapter 45, verse seven. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. God is sovereign over it all. And so, yes, we suffer because of the sinful choices of people, but people only have free will because the sovereign God has allowed us to have free will. Does that make sense? You go, no, we allowed that. Yes, we did allow it. Who allowed us to allow it? The sovereign God who, is, who rules over all, who allowed us to allow things. God who is sovereign, okay? And he knows the end from the beginning, and he, including the impact of our choices on one another. He's not surprised by, he doesn't give us free will, and then we make a choice and it causes someone else to suffer. And God goes, ooh, I didn't know that that was going to be the result of that. He, he knows the end from the beginning. God is sovereign. 
I promise you this is good news because it may not feel like it, but we're going to get to why this is absolutely good news. It's absolutely good news that God rules and reigns and is sovereign over everything. Okay? And yes, we suffer from the attacks of the enemy, but Satan is a dog on a leash at best. He has limited power for a limited time. And the book of Job, we're going to look at it just a little bit. The book of Job would argue that he can only come against us to the degree that God allows it. Now, well, here's what, let me clarify a couple things. Here, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that in suffering, we just embrace it, never pray for healing, never pray for breakthrough. That's not, I'm not teaching that. I, pr I promise you, my little girl's been sick all weekend, right? Pale, throwing up, awful. I don't suspect this must be the sovereign will of God. It just like, okay, yeah, maybe if God allowed that, great, okay? I don't know. Okay, let's go back and forth. My point is, what do I do when I see her sick? I pray, as scripture tells me to, for her absolute healing. I lay my hands on my little girl and I go, be healed in the name of Jesus. They don't cancel each other out. Both are true. Both are absolutely true. Is God sovereign? Yes. Does God heal? Yes. Is God all-powerful? Actually, one is true because the other is true. We can pray and ask God to intervene and move and, and heal because he is sovereign. And if he's not sovereign, then how can we trust that he has, is powerful enough to intervene? We absolutely have to have the sovereignty of God in place when suffering comes. It is a pillar. It is an anchor. We have to cling to it. Amen. And I am not saying, so I'm not saying we just, oh, suffering's my lot. I'm not going to pray against this. No, no, I'm not saying that. And I'm also not saying that God does evil right. or directly causes every kind of suffering. I'm not, I'm not saying that. In fact, that would be against scriptural teaching. The book of James says that God cannot be tempted with evil and that he himself does not tempt anyone else to do it. If you want the reference, that's James chapter 1, verse 13. So no, God does not cause someone to commit sins against another person. If he sovereignly allows us to have free will and we make choices that, that, that cause suffering, God did not cause anybody, does not ever and has not ever and will not ever cause one person to commit sins against another person that cause them to suffer. God may at times ordain certain kinds of suffering, but at the very least, what every camp should at least agree on is that a high view of the sovereignty of God demands that we recognize that he at least allows us to have free will and allows what's going on here. And, and if he didn't, let me, let, me, let me say it this way. Let me say it this way. If he didn't allow it, if the all-powerful God of all creation put his foot down and says, no, not this, Who's going to overrule that? Because it's certainly not my theology that says, oh, God put his foot down, refuses to allow that, and Satan overpowered him. I, I don't believe that. I believe that if God puts his foot down and says no to this, it's no to that. That's it. There's nobody in existence there's no demon or devil in hell, no person on earth that is going to overpower him. And if we are, 
if we allow things, it's because God has allowed us to allow them. I know I've said that, but it's just, we have to get that. That God is still ruling overall. Okay? I just, I want to belabor this point because this is a point that's attacked so often during suffering. Is we abandon the sovereignty of God. And this is the thing that every other thing hinges on. So at the very least, we should acknowledge, every camp should at least acknowledge that God is in control, that God is sovereign. And if God allows it, then he has a divine purpose in doing so. God allows us free will. He has a divine purpose in doing so. If God allows any kind of uncomfortable experience, it's because he has a divine purpose in doing so. Here's what I'm getting at. In the end, I believe that we will see that even the free choices of mankind and the attacks of the enemy will ultimately be made to serve the eternal purposes of God. Think of the cross. When those who wanted to execute Jesus thought they were just going to murder him. When Satan thought, I'm going to destroy the king of glory. Yeah. And, and mankind were held responsible for their choices. It says, you murdered, you crucified the king of glory. And Satan's held responsible for his treachery. And yet it tells us that God put forth his son as a propitiation. So all of the attacks of the enemy and the free will choices of man ultimately served the eternal purposes of God. That's sovereignty. That is God is sovereign over. Let me show you a couple of examples just to drive this, drive it. I know we got three points, so I said we're going to go long. I just want to make sure, again, that we're looking to the word and we're not just pulling up stuff. Let me, let me, let me show you, Joseph. There's so many. Honestly, what I had was like 17 pages of just like this thing, okay? Because honestly, there's so many. It's all over scripture. It's everywhere. When you have eyes, when your eyes are open, you see it's everywhere. But let me give you two, okay? I'm gonna, we're going to talk about Joseph. We're going to talk about Job, okay? Joseph in the Old Testament. Joseph is this young guy. He has a dream. I believe an absolute vision from God that he would become a great ruler, okay? That his brothers would bow down to him. That his father even would bow down to him. He's given this dream. He makes the wonderful mistake of, in his excitement, going out and sharing, whether it's a mistake or not. I don't know. Okay, he goes out and shares that vision with his family, okay? What happens to him as a result of that? His brothers get insanely jealous, Okay, they're, they're going to kill him. One of the brothers talks him out of it. They beat him, throw him in a pit, sell him off into slavery. He becomes a slave in Potiphar's house. Okay, off to Egypt he goes. While in Potiphar's house, Potiphar's wife has the hots for Joseph. She tries to get with him. He grabs his coat. He runs out of there naked rather than sin against Potiphar and the Lord, and he is thrown in prison because she has to figure out, she has to explain this, why he came running naked out of my room. So she falsely accuses him of rape, trying to rape her. Joseph is then thrown in prison. In prison, he, he meets two guys, and both of them have vision, right? And he, Joseph is given an interpretation of these dreams, right? And he says to the one, your dream basically means you're about to be beheaded, sorry about your luck. The second guy, he says, your dream means that you're going to be reinstated into the Pharaoh's court. And when you are, please remember me and, and put in a good word for me. Get me out of this prison. Right? It happened just as Joseph interpreted the dream because God gave him the interpretation. Okay? One guy's killed. The other guy is restored back to Potiphar's court. Right? And he forgets about Joseph. 
until Pharaoh, sorry, I kept saying Potiphar, Pharaoh has a, has a vision, Pharaoh has a dream, and he doesn't know what it means. And then the guy goes, oh, I know somebody who interprets dreams. Right? And he brings Joseph before him. Joseph says, here's what your dream means. Your dream means we're going to have years of plenty where things are great, and then we're going to have years of famine. So here's my recommendation. My humble recommendation is that during the years of plenty, we, we store up extra stuff, and during the years, so that during the years of famine, we have resources to feed people so we will not die during the famine that comes upon the land. Okay, that's the background to this whole story. Okay, so Joseph has a vision and a dream from God, and then 13 years, 13 years, was beaten, thrown in a pit, sold into slavery, falsely accused of rape, thrown into prison, forgotten in prison, and then 13 years later, it comes into Pharaoh's court. And the vision is fulfilled. And people come from all over, including his brothers, and they bow down to him because he's in control now. He's been made the second most powerful man in the known world under only Pharaoh himself. And he's overseeing the distribution of the resources. So they're all coming, bowing down. His vision comes to pass 13 years later. Look at these verses now in relation to this story. Genesis chapter 45, verses 48. His brothers know who he is now. And they're freaking out because, oh my gosh, Joseph is going to take his revenge. And Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I'm your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now don't be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. You sold me here. So they have responsibility. Right? For God sent me before you to preserve life. God, God sent me. How did Joseph get to Egypt? He was sold as a slave into Egypt. That wasn't fun. He said, God sent me. He had a purpose in doing it. To preserve life. Life For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. He says, we got five more years of famine, and God, he says it again, and God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Do you see the sovereignty of God in that? Please tell me that you see that God is behind all of that saying, okay, I don't believe that God caused Joseph's brothers to beat him and throw him in a pit, but I believe that God, knowing the end from the beginning, allows things to happen to work out his eternal purposes. Psalm chapter 105, verses 16 and 17. Just in case we think Joseph's off his rocker, here goes the psalmist talking about. <coughs> the same scenario. When he, talking about God, listen to these words, because this is going to be uncomfortable. When he, God, summoned a famine on the land and broke all the supply of bread, he, God, had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. Who gave Joseph the vision when he was a young boy? God. According to scripture, who is the one who broke the supply of bread and summoned a famine on the land? According to Psalm 105, it was God. Who sent Joseph to Egypt? 
According to Psalm 105 and Genesis 45 and other places, it was God. God was sovereign over it all. That does not eradicate man's responsibility or the attacks of the enemy. It's saying that God saw all of it, knew all of it, and was presiding over all of it as the sovereign king of all for his purposes. He allowed these experiences of suffering in Joseph's life because he had a greater purpose in it, his glory and all the nations. Man, we're going so long on point number one, we may only get through one of nine today, okay? Let's take a look at Job because Job, I feel like, has been so abused. The book of Job, we're so quick to throw away the theology of the book of Job and say that Job has bad theology and Paul has bad theology and Joseph has bad theology. And we'd rather say that than say, I maybe have bad theology. (laughs) We'd rather say that. We'd rather go, Job was a little off or Paul was off or Joseph was off. And go, no, maybe you're off because it's all over scripture. Let's look at Job because Job has just been abused by theologians. Job chapter one verses, I'm going to read a lot. Okay, this is a lot. It's a lot. It's like almost a whole, it's more than a whole chapter. Okay, Job chapter one, verse six through two, through two ten. Okay, please stay with me. It's there in your notes. One day the members of the heavenly court came to present themselves before the Lord and the accuser Satan came with them. Where have you come from? The Lord asked Satan. Satan answered the Lord, I've been patrolling the earth, watching everything that's going on. And then the Lord asked Satan, have you noticed my servant Job? He's the finest man in all the earth. He is blameless, a man of complete integrity. He fears God and stays away from evil. Man, I'd love to have God be able to say that about me, okay? Satan replied to the Lord, yes, but Job has a good reason to fear God because you've always put a wall of protection around him and his home and his property. You've made him prosper in everything he does. Look how rich he is. But reach out and take away everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. All right, you may test him, the Lord says to Satan. Do whatever you want with everything he possesses, but don't harm him physically. I want you to see, God goes, okay, here's how far you can go and no further. Here's how far you can go and no further. Satan is a dog on a leash. So Satan left the Lord's presence. And one day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting at the oldest brother's house, a messenger arrived at Job's home with this news. Your oxen were plowing with the donkeys feeding beside them when the Sabians raided us. They stole all the animals and killed all the farmhands, and I am the only one who escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger arrived with this news. The fire of God has fallen from heaven and burned up your sheep and all the shepherds. I am the only one who escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, a third messenger arrived with this news. Three bands of Chaldean raiders have stolen your camels and killed your servants. I am the only one who's escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another messenger arrived with this news. Your sons and daughters were feasting in their oldest brother's home, and suddenly a powerful wind swept in from the wilderness and hit the house on all sides. The house collapsed, and all your children are dead, and I am the only one who escaped to tell you. Job stood up. Look at this worship. Job stood up in his greatest day of suffering and loss. And he tore his robe in grief and he shaved his head and he fell to the ground to worship. And he said, I came naked from my mother's womb and I will be naked when I leave. The Lord gave me what I had and the Lord has taken it away. Praise the name of the Lord. In all of this, Job did not sin by blaming God. 
So what we say is we go, Job's theology got off because he was suffering. Job was blaming God for stuff that wasn't his fault. Actually, that's not what the Bible says. Can we just let our theology be determined by the scriptures? Because the scriptures said in all of this, Job did not sin by blaming God. Another translation said, falsely accused God of wrongdoing. One day the members of the heavenly court came again to present themselves before the Lord, and the accuser, Satan, came to them. Where have you come from? And the Lord asked Satan, the Lord asked Satan, and Satan answered the Lord, I've been patrolling the earth, watching everything that's going on. And the Lord asked Satan, have you noticed my servant Job again? He's the finest man in all the earth. He's blameless, a man of complete integrity. He fears God and stays away from evil. Listen to this. And he has maintained his integrity, even though you urged me to harm him, without cause. We go, Job brought this on himself. That's not what the scripture says. It says, you urged me to come against him without cause. There was nothing in Job that caused this. That's what it says. So Satan replied to the Lord, skin for skin, a man will give up everything he has to save his life, but reach out and take away his health and he will surely curse you to your face. All right, do with him as you please, the Lord says to Satan, but spare his life. Dog on a leash. So Satan left the Lord's presence and he struck Job with terrible boils from head to foot. Job scraped his skin with a piece of broken pottery as he sat among the ashes. And his wife said to him, are you still trying to maintain your integrity? Curse God and die. But Job replied, you talk like a foolish woman. Should we accept only good things from the hand of God and never anything bad? Other translations say never any adversity. So in all, we go, Job was off again there. Hang on a second. The very next breath. So in all of this, Job said nothing wrong. Job 13, 15. I want you to see his worship. Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Even so, I will defend my own ways before him. We say Job was off, but that's not what the Bible says. And look at how the book concludes. Job chapter 42, verse 7 and 8. By the way, what we do is we go, okay, we pin it on Job, and I get it. Job wasn't perfect, okay? Job was, Job was a man like us, okay? Job had stuff in his life. But his friends come along, and they were doing really great for the first, like, week because they shut up. They didn't stay at work. They just came and sat with a suffering man, and they just wept with him. They didn't try to explain it. They didn't try to figure it out. They didn't try to come in even with any theology. They were just like, oh, they were just there with him. And then they opened their mouth and they started basically trying to explain to Job why he was experiencing so much suffering. Well, maybe it's because you did this or maybe it's because you did that. And that's, that's what we do to people. We go, yeah, you know, well, maybe this or maybe that. And, and, and here's how God wraps us all up. First of all, God comes in and speaks and we say, God corrected Job. And yes, he did. You know what God said to Job? Essentially this. Are you sovereign or am I sovereign? Were you there when the foundations of the earth were laid or was I there? And then he says this, Job chapter 42, verse seven and eight, it's in your notes. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, my anger burns against you and against your two friends. Listen to this, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now, therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. God himself says that what Job spoke was not wrong. 
That's why I said I want to get you to the point where if you disagree, you're disagreeing with the words of God, with the words of Scripture, not with my opinion. Satan was only permitted to do certain things. Yes, he seeks to destroy. Yes, he caused it. Yes, he did all of that. But he only had limited power for a limited time. And it was limited by the God who is sovereign over all things. God restrains evil when it does not serve his ultimate purposes. God never causes it directly. And he may allow, but he only allows it if it's going to serve his eternal purposes. He's in control and we have to be anchored to that truth. That, that, our, that we're never going to encounter a moment of suffering that hasn't been filtered through the wisdom and providence of our sovereign God. When suffering strikes, I need to know that. You need to know that, that what the scripture teaches is that God is still on the throne. He's not out of control, freaking out, going to plan B. I do not have time, but we're going we're gonna, to, we have to, because I, I'm going to take 17 weeks to do this, okay? I'm going to try to just... We'll get as far until you start throwing shoes at me, okay? Because this, I can't say what I just said and not say the next stuff. Has to be said. I don't want to leave you out of here with just that. That's central. That's why we spend some time on it, okay? But we have to get to this. Point number two, because they're both true, and they're true at the same time. Anchor point number two. God is good. Yes. He's good. Luke chapter 18, verse 19, someone says, good teacher, and Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. He's trying to get him to recognize, you see that I'm good. I want you to understand that I'm God because no one is good but God. No one is good but God. God is good, okay? Psalm chapter 145, verse 9. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. James chapter 1, verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. You have good gifts and perfect gifts in your life? Every one of them comes from God. Every good and perfect gift in your life is a gift from the God who is good, It comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. That means his goodness is not a changeable fact. It's fixed. His goodness is is true and it will always be true, has always been true. You can never undo the goodness of God. It will never change. He will always be good. So God is good. That's a settled fact, and we must cling to that in our moments of suffering. And it's not that we can't have questions, not that we can't have moments of doubt and struggle and be real. God wants us to be real in our suffering. But we need to be anchored to the truth that, God, yes, God is sovereign overall. And that is good news, and we're going to see more why. But it's good news that God is sovereign, but we need to be anchored also to the truth that God, the God who is sovereign, is good. The God who is in control is good. Many people think that these two points are mutually exclusive, that they cancel each other out. And in an effort to protect God's character, we're often quick to rationalize God's, rationalize away God's role in suffering. And we say things like, oh, oh, honey, God had nothing to do with that. Or God would never allow that because he's good. And I, and I understand what we're trying to do. I really do. I've said it. I've said it so many times. 
But it's, I, I've come to understand that that's actually the exact kind of talk that actually impugns the character of God. That's the kind of talk that actually undermines the goodness of God. When you say God wouldn't allow that because he's good, you're saying if he did allow that, he's no longer good. It's always funny to me when people pretend, and I've done this, pretend to be humble while claiming the moral high ground over God, that I know what the ultimate good is for everybody. And that if God does that or allows that, he's no longer good. And I get to be the judge standing over God, telling him when he's good and when he's not good. That if he allows that, he's good. If he allows that, he's not good. So I know what you're trying to say. I know what we're trying to say. And we go, oh, honey, God had nothing to do with that. He would never allow that because, that's, because he's good. What I'm saying to you is, yes, he's good. That's a fixed fact. Whatever he allows or ordains in my life, what I have to do is trust that he is good. That his goodness is the fixed fact, regardless of what he allows or ordains in my life. And this gets at our definition of good, because we have a watered-down, modern, kind of gospel-like version of goodness. And let me just say this. A good dentist will keep scraping your teeth until they're clean. A good doctor will re-break the bone to make sure it heals properly. A good parent will withhold certain things that their child wants at any given moment and bring sometimes painful discipline for the ultimate long-term good of their child. And yet we don't apply that kind of goodness to God. We go, if God ever lets me, allows me to be uncomfortable, allows me any suffering that I don't like, he's no longer good. Oh, God wouldn't do that because he's good. Of course he's good. I love what C.S. Lewis said. C.S. Lewis, when, when he, his wife was suffering through an illness that ultimately took her life, somebody said, oh, no, no, you know, just trust that God is good. And C.S. Lewis is like, a minister says that to him. And C.S. Lewis's response was, no, I have no doubt that God, God is good. I'm just wondering how painful his best will turn out to be. I have no doubt that God will do his best in my life. I'm just wondering how painful that will turn out to be, right? He's saying God is good no matter what pain I experience. God is good no matter what suffering comes my way. God is good as a fixed Fact, it's an anchor point that we cling to. And so I, I love the opinion of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. If you don't know the story, they're, they're about to get thrown into a fiery furnace. They're told, they're told, worship this image, worship a false god, or we're going to throw you into a fiery furnace and you're going to be devoured by flames. And I love their response. As I said, our God can deliver us from this fire. Our God is able. He can do it. And our God will deliver us from this fire. And that's about as far as most churches go. We go, God can and God will. But they didn't stop there. They said, our God can deliver us from this fire. Our God will deliver us from this fire. That's what my faith said. And even if he doesn't, I will never worship another God. We need even if kind of faith. Yes, we must believe that God is sovereign and omnipotent and he can save us from any fire at any time. Do you? And, and, and the kind of faith that goes a step further and says, my God will. God can't and I believe he will. That's why, I, man, that's why you bring me somebody who's terminally ill, I'm going to say, my God can and my God will. And that's where my faith is at. 
But what I'm praying is underneath all of that for them and for me and for everybody else is the even if. That even if he doesn't, he's God, he's sovereign, he's good, and I will go down worshiping him. I will enter eternity where there is no suffering and no sorrow and no more tears and no more crying and no more sickness and no more pain. I will enter that eternity worshiping the God who is sovereign and good. Look at Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 17 and 18. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. What worship? Now think for two seconds before we move on to the last point because I've already gone way too long and I'm sure your butts are going crazy. Okay, you need to get out of your seat. I understand it, okay? But think about how these two points work together. If God is sovereign, if God is in control and he's not good, that's horrific news. That's horrific news. If God is in control and he's bad, that's the worst news I could ever give you. And if God is good, but he's not all powerful, that's also bad news. It just paints God like a, a well-wisher on the side who just can't do anything. Oh, I wish, I wish I had the power to do something about that. But I'm not omnipotent. I'm not sovereign. I'm not. Do you understand how these two must work together? The, God, the, the fact that God is sovereign and good is the best news you could ever have in the middle of your suffering. It's anchor points for you. It's like, okay, what will keep me from, from being dashed around and my faith devastated by this suffering? The fact that God is still on his throne, he's in control, he's not shocked by this, he sees the end from the beginning. And whatever he allows, is he has a divine purpose in it, and he's so good. He's so, so, so good. Which logically leads us to the last point, and I'm going to do this one lightning fast, okay, but it's so good. If God is sovereign and God is good, that means God's plan is for your good. God's plan is for your good. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. Listen, whatever God allows will ultimately prove to be for your eternal good. Jeremiah 29, 11, God speaking for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. That doesn't plan evil for you. So I have good plans for you to give you a future and to hope. God's plan is for your good. Romans 8, 28. Uh, Romans 8, 28. Romans 8 by itself will abolish half of the horrible theology I've ever heard. And not like I'm the theology king. We all got bad theology. <laughs> Let's be honest. I got areas. God's going to, my lifetime is going to be God correcting me on this and that. Okay. So, and I could be wrong on some of this stuff. That's why I say be a Berean. Okay. Don't ever just take my word. I'm not Jesus. Okay. Go get in the word. Get in the Bible. Okay. Get in the Bible. I've taught stuff that later I go, okay, hang on. I would teach that differently now. Okay. Be a Berean and diligently search the scriptures. But Romans 8 by itself, I think, would just destroy half of the bad theology on suffering that I've heard and on many things that I've heard. Because after a whole chapter of, you know, we're, we die daily, we face persecution and this and hunger and, and all these things. It says in Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. It didn't say all the good things work together for your good. It said all things. 
angels. It doesn't say some things will work together for your good. It says we know in the middle of all this suffering and struggle and strife, we know this is a truth that we must hold on to, that all things will work together for good for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purposes. Back to Joseph for just a second because I want you to see something. He got this. He got this. 13 years of suffering, struggle, Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. Speaking to his brothers, Joseph says, As for you, you meant evil against me. People making evil choices against each other, causing suffering. He says, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. God meant it for good. To bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And the name of God be glorified. He says, you had an evil purpose in you causing me to suffer. You meant evil against me, but God's plans for me are always for my good. And so whatever he allowed me to experience, it was for my good and for the good of these people who are not starving to death now and for the good of the glory of his name among all these nations that are now coming. How did you guys know to have this supply of resources? Because God glorified the God of all creation. God's plan is for your good. All things in your life will work together for your good. It will all work together for your good. Not to belabor it again, but think about if point number one is not true, scripture can't make this promise. If God is not sovereign, if he wasn't in control enough to either allow or stop it, then how can I trust that he's powerful enough to turn it around for my good? So in the end, God had nothing to do with that turns out to be horrible news. It implies that God is not in control, that he's lost control, that this thing is off the rails and God is just a helpless bystander to our deepest pain. And he's not. He's not. These verses all argue otherwise. They tell us that God is sovereign and good and will not allow us to experience an ounce of suffering that doesn't ultimately work out for our eternal good. We may not see it or understand how now, but I believe that one day we will see how every bit of suffering or tribulation or trial that we experienced in this life, God worked for our eternal good and his eternal glory. And I believe that because of the scriptures. Let me just say it this way, and I'm done. Nothing is wasted in God's hands. You ever had, uh, I'm not handy, you ever tried to assemble something and had extra pieces? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, what what do I do with those? And we just chuck them. No, here's what we do. We put them in a baggie and put them in a drawer, and then we forget them for seven years. That's what we do. I don't want to throw them away because I might figure out later what these... Nothing is wasted in God's hand. There's no extra parts. There's no extra moments of suffering or trial or joy or celebration. There's nothing wasted in God's hands. But you need to know this in the middle of your moment of suffering. You don't have to know how or why right then, but you need to know that ultimately, eternally, this is going to work out for your good and for his glory. Somehow, he's going to take it. He's going to take your mess, and he's going to turn it into something beautiful. This is what God does. This is what God is expert at. This is what God does as no one else can do. He makes beautiful things from the dust of our sorrows. He, we, have you ever seen a tapestry 
One side is a mess of tangled strings and whatever, and you flip it around, oh, there's the picture. We see the backside of the tapestry, all this mess of tangled stuff and the suffering and this and that, and here's joy and here's whatever, but it's like, I don't get it, I don't get it. And one day I think it's going to be flipped around and we're going to go, oh, oh, that's beautiful. He creates a breathtaking mosaic from the broken pieces of our lives. Nothing is wasted in God's hands. And so the promise of God in suffering is that he is in control, he is good, and all things will work together for your good. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. And I just pray, God, that you would uh, drive deep into our hearts your... um, your sovereign rule and God, your goodness, that we would not feel compelled to challenge your goodness or your sovereignty or your good plan for us. These are all feelings and experiences that we have all had and will all have at different times, God, because suffering comes. The rain falls on the just and on the unjust. Days of prosperity and days of adversity or days of rejoicing and days of struggle and seasons where there's just so much of both, the highest highs and the lowest lows. And God, we need to know that you're not just the Lord of our celebrations. You're the Lord over all of our seasons of struggle too. You're God in the mountains and in the valleys, God. You're sovereign. You're sovereign and you're so good. You're so, so, so good. And God, you have an eternal purpose and plan. You see the end from the beginning and you are working all things together for our good and for your glory and help us just be anchored to those truths when the moments of struggle come, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.